me and Chuck were talking before about how ridiculously toxic Twitter community can be. I want to sometimes just be like, oh, what am I even doing there? But then I also remember like, oh, it's because it's like literally the most important communication medium in the world for the next four years, apparently. So. (laughs) So we're stuck. Until Trump gets banned. (laughs) Races to the left of me. Snowflakes to the right. Here I am. are listening to the Liquid Flannel Podcast, recording January 16th, 2017. I'm one of your hosts, Chuck Williams. And I'm Brendan. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day, Chuck. Oh, well, thank you. My blackness thanks you. (laughs) And I'm Matthew, and I'm also really happy to be able to introduce our special guest, mentor and friend of mine for many years, Dr. Patrick Ross who's coming to us from Winfield, Kansas. Pat, what do you do there in Winfield? I'm a professor of biology and teach a whole grab bag of courses, uh, human A&P, animal behavior, ecology, genetics and evolution, and run the, uh, the division of math and science here. Nice. And we wanted to have Pat join us because we did our Best of Obama episode last week, and when we got off, I realized we hadn't even touched some issues that are pretty close to my heart, which are... The topics of his accomplishments on science and technology and the environment. Pat, you had a cool perspective on how to discuss this. Yeah, I I think uh, we can divide up his accomplishments twofold. There's the actual stuff that he did in terms of funding priorities and and bills and initiatives. But I think even more importantly and long-lasting will be the symbolic aspects of his presidency. And, And I've seen some articles referring to him as the nerd in chief. And I think he's the first nerd president that we've had. I mean, we've had smart presidents. Carter had a background in nuclear physics and, and Clinton was obviously a bright guy, uh, but they kind of uh, hid it behind a folksiness. You know, Barack waved his nerd flag proud and didn't uh, keep it hidden. He talked about his love for Spider-Man comics and he was a Trekkie and He's Urkel, all grown up. I mean, he's a black nerd. And we need more of that. Yeah, we've got Neil deGrasse Tyson, and we've got President Obama. And I think for uh, young African Americans, the idea that you can become famous and uh, successful by being a nerd is fantastic. We need that kind of role model. And that we'll have for the, uh, the kids who grew up during, if we want to call it the age of Obama. I think we will reap the fruits of that 10 years from now. Uh, when we see a wave of African-American kids coming into college going, I want to be a nerd. I want to be a science guy. And without going into any specific topic, it was such a refreshing change from the George W. Bush administration that was hostile in many cases to scientific research, um, very much more politics and ideology driven. And under Obama, you saw, I mean, right out of the gate, He said, we want to put science back at the forefront. We want our policies that we're making to be science-based as much as possible. We want our process to be transparent when it comes to the clash between what's scientifically correct and what's politically expedient. And I think they did a pretty good job of that. 
We will restore science to its rightful place and wield technology's wonders to raise health care's quality and lower its cost. We will harness the sun and the winds and the soil to fuel our cars and run our factories, and we will transform our schools and colleges and universities to meet the demands of a new age. All this we can do. All this we will do. One of the things that you look at in his signature accomplishments is the Paris Agreement, which, of course, I guess Trump has a a mixed record on, you know, what he's going to do with that. Maybe he'll tear it up day one. Maybe it'll stick around. He can't quite make up his mind. But I think that was definitely one of the more recent, uh, you know, accomplishments that I think sticks in my mind, particularly. In addition to, you know, the Paris Agreement, I thought that there was more attention that was brought to uh, fuel efficiency and emission standards. I know there's been kind of a push to bring the automotive industry back and then to also kind of stress reducing the carbon footprint within the auto industry, I think was a big deal. Well, I thought what was amazingly clever with Obama is after bailing out the auto industry, then he immediately followed that with all the clean energy completely pushing the industry to redo its standards. And I don't think he would have been able to do that if he hadn't bailed them out. You know, they owed him big. And so they kind of rolled over for that, which was, I think, politically masterful on his part. Well, and overall, we just saw a serious shift away from the George W. Bush administration of acceptance of the scientific consensus on climate change itself, uh, which speaks to Pat's point about the symbolic scientific victories of the Obama administration that, you know, basically at this point in the developed world, it's the United States and Australia where this is even up for debate. And for eight years, it was no longer up for debate, at least at the executive branch in the United States. Now, Congress was a different story. I think it's interesting that during Rex Tillerson, who's being the the Exxon CEO who is up for Secretary of State during his confirmation hearing, he even acknowledged this is an Exxon CEO acknowledging that climate change is a real issue. And that's an interesting split to see both from his background and also from what President-elect Trump's position is and has been on climate change. You know, it's interesting in that because he does acknowledge the existence of climate change, but does not acknowledge the existence of subsidies for the uh, coal and gas industry. That part, I guess, it's kind of halfway there. You know, on the other hand, it could be like Trump, where they think that the whole thing is just a hoax for, you know, Chinese business purpose or something. Well, and the irony of Rex Tillerson and the ExxonMobil is that ExxonMobil came under, you know, heavy criticism for developing these internal research reports basically saying like climate change is real it's happening and it's going to be a big problem for us if we don't start to address it and we're affected and i think this was in like the 80s or 70s even Mm -hmm. and then they just said wow these are really not looking good for us let's just bury these you know as deep as possible so they knew it early on and they had a scientific consensus even within exxon mobil to say that this is something that they need to take seriously but then outwardly didn't really make that view public, continued along saying like, nope, well, here's what we got to do. Make as much money as we can right now. Mm-hmm. I think Trump is going to find it difficult to wipe away the Obama legacy with uh, acknowledging the existence of, of climate change and humans' role in it because it's really diffused down through 
all the different agencies within the government. You've got the the Army, the Navy, all working on the assumption that climate change is coming and we have to change weapon systems, we have to change strategies to, to deal with that and to completely just turn that off and go backwards when a lot of folks realize that is the future of this planet will be ridiculous. They will want to make the most strategic decisions possible for their soldiers, for their airmen, for their sailors, and for the defense of the country. And they're not going to do something stupid, no matter who's at the helm. You have also seen that percolate down to um, state and local governments. You've got local governments that are adopting green building policies for all of their government-owned buildings. You've got state governments that are setting emission standards and frameworks for regional cap and trade and things like that. Like economies are now based on the scientific consensus and you can't just undo that. There's a whole slew of, you know, companies now in the US who are committed to pursuing green energy and things like that. I know that Trump has campaigned on bringing back all the coal and oil jobs, but maybe when he realizes how unrealistic that is, he'll say, you know, what's not unrealistic, though, is like solar and wind jobs. Those jobs can be brought back. With those uh, symbolic victories was recently here the rejection of the Keystone XL. I can't tell if that was necessarily based on his inner nerdiness or his uh, Mother Earth heart, or if it was political expediency when it really wasn't going to affect his political capital one way or the other. I don't know. I'm not trying to be skeptical, but it was a good move either way that the <laughs> right. pipeline got rejected. It took a while, though. It, it, took, it a while. took a little bit of a while for him <laughs> to get there. That's right. A little bit from the people. And then wasn't Keystone XL suing the United States because of that? Well, that could be for a later day. <laughs> I agree with Chuck thinking about that as potentially being more of a symbolic victory in terms of the number of pipelines we already have, that this was just a, a small addition to what was already going on. Uh, so I think that victory is important, but probably more symbolic than is this really going to reduce use of fossil fuels in this country or transport of fossil fuels in this country? Probably not. But symbolically, I think it's incredibly important. Given that a lot of that oil was destined for China, basically, I mean, the reason they wanted yeah. to build the pipeline was to get the tar sands oil to the Gulf so we could ship it out of the country. You know, And it also has to be balanced against Obama does have a mixed record on uh, energy sources because he went for a, what they call it, the all of the above strategy. Um, we saw a huge expansion of gas and oil expansion domestically under his administration. Yeah, opening up the Gulf right before uh, the big accident. Right, yeah, uh, the Deepwater Horizon. But even then, I mean, yeah. that was certainly something that I remember at the time was, was huge news. Obama, you know, there wasn't a lot you, he could do about it, it didn't seem like. And so it was a ecological disaster that took weeks and weeks to fix. I mean, I remember they just had live streams of like, here's the yeah. broken pipe just spewing oil just all day, every yeah, day. And then they would show the graphics of what was actually happening animated. And it was like, oh, well, that looks like that can never be fixed. <laughs> oh, right. But that wasn't his fault. We're not blaming Obama. <laughs> no, but I, I think what it did highlight at that point in his presidency is the opening up of the Gulf and other areas to, to further exploration and drilling occurs just before this accident. So he ends up looking a little bit like a clown to the environmental movement. We're saying, you know, don't do this, don't do this. Accidents can happen. 
and then an accident happens. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with these pipelines you, that you see like, oh, these pipelines are safe. You know, they rarely spill. But then with the Dakota pipeline, there was one just like, a, mm-hmm. a you know, a few miles from the site that they were protesting. So that's something that I hope people bring up more as we get the Trump administration teaming up with ExxonMobil and Russia apparently to just do a bunch of new Arctic drilling because, hey, one of the benefits of all that climate change is when those polar ice caps melt, drill, baby, drill. I I was getting tired of the state of Florida anyways. We don't really need that. You know, they voice those type of plans to say, hey, look, there are things that can go catastrophically wrong when we're doing this. And what is the gain that we're getting here, really? I just realized that if the polar ice caps melt, we'll never have another florida man story well they'll just move inward oh they'll just oh, move inward oh, yeah. <laughs> it'll be climate change apocalypse <laughs> it'll florida be man. georgia man at that point did you guys it'll see that missouri man that video of that giant alligator oh, oh my god it was amazing <laughs> what video was that? there's some video that nbc news put out today of like on some like preserve in florida just Ugh. the hugest most you know sauropod dinosaur looking giant <laughs> thing walking across the street yeah, it right was amazing <laughs> but anyway what do you guys what do you guys want to hit next there's so much to cover well as yeah. far as what's a topic that you guys as, are on? as far as as far as giant crocodiles on preserved lands go i mean one of the big things that happened under obama's administration was the passage of the the omnibus public lands management act um, this is in 2009, and it was a huge act. I made some notes on this, but at a certain point, I just had to stop. I was just pulling highlights from it because it did. So I had to look up what omnibus meant. Uh, and That's what means a lot of stuff. Many subjects. <laughs> yeah, it means many subjects and lots of volumes. One of the things that it did was it preserved 2 million acres across nine states as wilderness, and then another 500 million acres as permanently protected um, national lands, whether that was in monuments or historical sites or uh, smaller wilderness areas, thousands of miles of new recreational and historical trails. You know, so if the Floridians are getting attacked by giant primeval crocodiles, I think that's a big thanks Obama moment. You know, they said we needed to triple the border patrol. Or now they're going to say we need to quadruple the border patrol. Or they'll want a higher fence. Maybe they'll need a moat. Maybe they'll want alligators in the moat. They'll never be satisfied. I guess, you know, that that was a pretty big investment into the land. There was also um, just the investment in general for research for clean energy was pretty impressive. $90 billion was uh, invested from the 2009 stimulus into research on smart grids and things like that. Yeah, that's right. Uh, smart grids, electric vehicles, uh, renewables. Um, it was it was a huge investment, and it also encouraged seeing that amount of government money going into those sectors also encouraged a lot of private investment in those sectors. So we actually saw a big boost just from private investment for things that are going to help with with climate change, um, kind of on the small but cumulative scale. It feels like, you know, in some ways you're dangling the carrot in front of corporations, but you kind of have to do that. You have to, to show that there's a reason to invest in this and that it can be profitable, even though that shouldn't necessarily be the goal. 
It's the only language they speak. I, I think it's a good example of, you know, Keynesian economics in action, where if the government invests itself in a sector, then private money will follow. And at a certain point, the government can kind of draw back its investment because now the sector is up and running on its own. And I think that represents a lot of how Obama moved through his presidency. He was a very pragmatic fellow, and that... I think it angered um, a number of folks on the left that he didn't go as far as we had all hoped he would. Uh, but he recognized the political reality of what he faced, especially after the 2010 uh, elections, that he could only go so far. And, and what you get with Obama is this interesting combination of pragmatism and hopefulness. And that he, I think, this is my interpretation of it, he recognizes that we aren't going to be able to go as far as we want now, but by making these steps now, it will pave the way for the future. So he does have this hopefulness for the future that it, we're going to get there. It's just going to take more time, more work on other folks back besides his. We also see his roots as a community organizer. He can't do it himself, but he can push us part of the way there. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, what happened with those midterm elections is too few of us weren't willing to carry the uh, the water the rest of the way. Yeah, it's certainly something that, you know, Obama gets criticized a lot, especially from the left of saying, well, you didn't go far enough. You didn't push far enough. But, you know, that's just Obama's style. You know, he's always coming at it from a spirit of what can I actually get done? What can I actually get other people to, you know, sign up with? And he did it with good intentions, I think, to meet people halfway, where that didn't always actually happen on the other side. Yeah. But, he, you know, he never stopped trying. And as much as I can look back and criticize that, I also think that's the correct, valid, moral, you know, approach that a president should be taking. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know how big uh, you guys dived into these ridiculously huge lists of uh, Obama's accomplishments. So the White House put out this science impact report in uh, June of 2016 that lists 100 examples of things that Obama accomplished, you know, in the field of, of science and technology and during his administration. And there's a huge list of stuff. He was doing things to help out, um, you know, science education and promoting the education side of things. Yeah, I think that that's one of the uh, the accomplishments that doesn't get get talked about as much. Again, with Obama's pragmatism, if you read through that list of, of 100 things, a lot of it is very focused on the everyday lives of who we are. And part of that is STEM education and dealing with the gap between rich and poor, black and white, in terms of access to top-notch STEM education. And so it's not just blanket funding, we need more science educators, but a lot of it was looking at school districts that weren't getting much funding, that weren't getting uh, a lot of computer education. Computer education for all was one of his big programs. Really trying to improve accessibility to STEM education. And I thought that that, again, getting back to my uh, original point, as inspiring the next generation of uh, of nerds not just inspiring them but giving them the resources and the technology and the teachers to make it happen he's playing the long game here and i think it's incredibly important and speaking to pat's point about the symbolism of what he did in these in these areas running white house science fairs and actually getting down there and 
talking to kids and eighth graders who were showing up at the White House who were showing off their science projects, and some of them were maybe more practical than other ones. It, that didn't matter to him. He was he was there. He was interested in all of that. I have to imagine that other kids who were coming up in the educational system looking at, look at these kids, they're doing scientific research and they get to go to the White House and meet the president and the president seems interested in that. I think that's a big symbolic victory for STEM education and education generally. Mm -hmm. And he said when he hosted those science fairs that normally we bring the Super Bowl team, we bring the NBA champions, we bring the winners of the World Series here. We got to bring our science heroes too. And his science heroes were these kids. Welcome to the White House Science Fair, one of my favorite events. If we are recognizing athletic achievement, then we should also be recognizing academic achievement and science achievement. If we invite the team that wins the Super Bowl to the White House, then we need to invite some science fair winners to the White House as well. Go into the symbolism, you know, talking about people of color, African American communities, not having as many heroes, people to look up to. You look at the priorities, even in the schools. I mean, Matt, you're in Texas. They spend more money on, on football stadiums for high schools down there than they do actual science, technology, engineering, math sure. you know, programs. I mean, if you're a kid, you're going to go to what the new the newfangled devices at your school are. If it's sports, I guess that's what your school prioritizes. You go to that, but you start to see maybe some new labs opening up. You start to see cool new computers and things like that. And that goes a long way to changing what a kid's interest can be right there. Just by what he has access, he or she has access to. So. And Pat, you're a, you're a science educator and Southwestern college isn't a huge school, but do you anticipate seeing more people coming into the science program as a direct or even a diffused result of some of these policies? That's my hope. We'll just have to wait and see. Uh, again, I think it's part of the long game. These are things that may be impacting second and third and fourth grade kids. But in the same way that I grew up, here's showing my age, uh, the age of Apollo. I grew up with the Apollo missions. I didn't go into aerospace engineering, but that definitely uh, rev me up about science as a kid. Well, I think that's a really important thing to bring up today because today Gene Cernan, who was the last man who walked on the moon, died. He was the last guy there. And, you know, that was, what, 30, 30 years ago? Now we could say it never happened. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> There's <laughs> no <happened>. proof. <laughs> was it a hoax? I don't know. Yeah, that struck me too. I got to meet Eugene Cernan uh, about 25 years ago and a uh, nice fella. One of the things he shared with me, I asked him, what did the moon smell like? Because when you get back in the lunar capsule, you take off your spacesuit and you've got moon all over you. And he said it smelled like gunpowder. Huh. And that blew me away. Uh, so he was a neat fellow. There's only six Apollo astronauts left who uh, walked on the moon, six out of 12. And they're ranging in age from 81 to 86. So in the blink of an eye, we will have nobody left that walked on the moon. And that, that does bring me to something that Obama could be criticized for with uh, space exploration. One of the things he cut, uh, there was a mission that uh, Bush had put together. We're going to the moon. We're Is going the to Mars. Constellation program? Constellation, that's right. And he cut that. Um, and 
that could be viewed as Obama maybe being anti-science. But you have to take the bigger view. What he did instead was he wanted NASA to focus more on Earth science, climate change and those issues, things that will directly impact our lives. Uh, although going to mo the moon and going to Mars may be inspirational for the immediate need of, of this country and the planet, yeah, we need to know more about climate change. Um, so NASA funding has not dropped. Uh, it's plateaued. It's a little bigger than it was in 2008, uh, but it's been more redirected towards these Earth-based projects. And there were people who were fairly pissed about Constellation getting canceled. Those missions are really important, though. I mean, we're doing oceanographic research. We're looking at weather. We're looking at space yeah. weather. But also, I think he deserves some credit for redirecting the focus of NASA from the space shuttle program, which was, okay, I'm going to come out and say it. It was very expensive, and it was pretty dangerous. And it was well, dated. It I was mean, old. <laughs> maybe long term, that that was a slip because, you know, Americans, we like big accomplishments. We like to be the first yeah. people on the moon, a satellite that's looking at ocean acidification. It doesn't have that same cachet. It's not going to be nearly as sexy. But, uh, but on the other hand, mm -hmm. he's also working with, like, Elon Musk. We have much cheaper missions going up to the International Space Station to restock it than we had with the Space mm -hmm. Shuttle or some of the earlier rocket programs that, that were still in effect that kind of got phased out under his administration. In retrospect, it turns out to have been kind of a well-timed decision in that, you know, I certainly was sad to see the end of the shuttle program and having, you know, to have U.S. astronauts rely on like the Russian Soyuz capsules and things to get to the International Space Station. Like that doesn't feel great, but it did allow him to, you know, refocus NASA's efforts onto some of some of those areas where you know, maybe there isn't as much attention being paid because it's not as flashy and letting these private companies take up and start saying, hey, there's a lot of money to be had here in, you know, shuttling things to orbit, shuttling things to the International Space Station, to launching satellites. And, you know, even looking into the farther future technology about things like asteroid mining, private space flight and things like that. So it was a well-timed investment that allowed the private sector to really step up, whereas maybe if the space shuttle kept going or if the U.S. spent a bunch on a new shuttle program replacement, you know, maybe that industry, you know, wouldn't have been there. If you would have told the, the astronauts, you know, when they came back from the last mission to the moon on the Apollo program and said, by the year, you know, 2016, We'll never go back to the moon. We still haven't gone back to the moon decades from now. I think they would have said, like, you're crazy. Like, why would we not do that? We're able to accomplish amazing things, you know, using the rover programs and that lander that landed on the comet, the Philae lander, um, that Pluto flyby. You know, a lot of amazing space stuff happened, you know, under Obama's watch. And it's awful hard to evaluate the space program with the current president right. because these things are done so far in advance. You know, so you can take a look at Obama and cutting the Constellation program as a decision. But a lot, you know, the Pluto flyby, that was a Bush thing, uh, I believe. I think that was launched during his administration. Absolutely. And so it's more about setting setting goals and funding priorities now for things that might happen eight to 10 years from now. And hopefully, keep, you know, keeping those projects running. And that's the crazy thing about some of those, you know, projects where if you're in the NASA team, that launched the Pluto satellite or whatever in the Bush administration, you had to wait until this year to be like, well, that work project is finally wrapping up. And the, you know, can you just imagine the stress and anxiety of being like, oh my God, we've waited 15 years, you know, for this. 
please, you know, don't let it go wrong, you know, at the last minute here. Well, as far as setting goals go, you know, uh, Obama gave a speech where he set a goal to put humans on Mars on a return trip, not these crazy trips where we send humans to Mars and then don't bring them back, apparently, by the 2030s. And yeah, on one hand, that's like, you're going to be, you'll, you'll have been out of office for 15 years by that point. So it, that's an easy thing to, to, to say. But on the other hand, that's not, it's not unlike Jack Kennedy saying we're going to put a man on the moon. You know, we set our sights high. We don't know exactly how we're going to accomplish it, but we believe that we can accomplish it. And I think that's another symbolic victory for science and technology under the Obama administration. I, I think another symbolic thing that uh, came out of the Obama administration, as we're hearing all the, the freak show of folks that Trump is appointing to his cabinet, if you take a look at the list of folks who had really hardcore science cred uh, that he appointed to uh, to his cabinet and as his science officer, uh, science advisors, they were amazing. Jane Lubchenco, but Department of Energy, uh, the FDA, Department of the Interior. It was an amazing list of folks who had it tremendous resumes in terms of their scientific accomplishments and instead well you know what we've got now uh it's a bunch of folks from the private sector industries as i saw on saturday night live the other night it's as if somebody uh before each cabinet appointment says you know what'd be really funny how about we try this and that's the new cabinet appointment one of the craziest ones is yeah obama's uh, secretary of energy right now is a uh, like nobel prize winning nuclear physicist Trump's uh, nominee is Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas, who could not even name the Department of Energy when he was listing off departments that he wanted to totally cut and eliminate from the government, blanked on the Department of Energy. He's now going to be leading the Department of Energy, replacing a, you know, Nobel Prize winning nuclear physicist. He majored in agriculture in college, right. and like, my favorite fun fact is that he got a D in a class called Meats, Rick Perry. <laughs> because you probably had to be able to list three meats, and he couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's three agencies of government when I get there that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, um, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. <laughs> but you no can't, doubt about but that. you can't name the third one? The third agency of government, yeah. I would I would do away with the education, uh, the uh, <laughs> commerce. I, I, commerce, and let's see, I can't. The third one, I can't. Sorry. <laughs> Oops. There's the Department of Bacon. Uh, <laughs> it's a uh, pheasant. I I don't know. <laughs> but you know, I think there's definitely something to be said for having the president use his platform to talk about big ideas, to make those crazy, you know, goals and say, hey, we're going to go to Mars. We're going to, you know, we can start taking steps now. Um, One of the things that I wanted to touch on is in his final State of the Union address, this kind of came out of nowhere, but near the end of it, he also said, like, I'm going to team up. I'm putting Vice President Joe Biden in head of the Cancer Moonshot Project, which when, you know, when he announced it, I was kind of like, this is this is crazy. Like, what are you even talking about? But then when I read more about it, I was like, this is amazing. Just for him to be able to dream so big to say, look, we can start investing now, investing in research, a billion dollars over a number of years in cancer research at the National Institutes of Health, 
the Food and Drug Administration. You know, you look at it now and you're like, well, that's not doing anything for me today. But then you have to think, you know, hey, look, part of being the president is you got to plan, you know, years and years down the line. And to just get the ball rolling, I think, speaks a lot to the, the way he thinks and how he is thinking about the long-term good. Yeah, you know, I'm sure it'll do a lot more for cancer than a bunch of NFL teams wearing pink at their football games. So I'm going to go ahead on a limb and say we're going to give this guy the benefit of the doubt on that. So. Also, we'd, we'd better hope that the moonshot pays off, too, because when they repeal Obamacare, you know, people are going to need some easy cure at that point. In terms of funding for research, one of the things I, I think that we see in president after president is the focus on these big projects, either short-term or long-term, should have immediate benefits to our welfare. So you've got the, the cancer moonshot and uh, clean energy, things like that. But you rarely see a president make news for, I'm going to sign off on an additional $10 billion for basic research, just to, in general, increase the coffers for the National Science Foundation. So my own work is in animal behavior. I never expect any president to say, yeah, there's going to be more money going to guppy sex research. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> um, so it's, got, it's still got to be to get the attention of the public, to get voters to the polls, something that's sexy, something that affects their everyday lives. What is sexier than guppy sex? I mean, Well, Matt, you've drunk the Kool-Aid, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've taken the class, so I'm, I'm already in the cult on how interesting guppy sex labs are. Uh, so that's always a disappointment, having been in, in a number of schools where there's a lot of researchers, whenever you see an announcement from any president about there's going to be more money for a research, most of the folks on that campus go, that does not affect me. Uh, it's a small sliver of the researchers out there that are directly doing something related to uh, cancer or clean energy, the topics that usually get a, a lot of publicity. Uh, if you take a look at the total amount of funding for science from 2008 to 2016, it's been pretty much flat. Now, that's not all Obama's fault by any means, because uh, mm -hmm. that st kind of stuff has to get through Congress as well. What he can do is set priorities. And obviously, from a pragmatic point of view, the priorities have to be set for things that will have tangible benefits. Thing things that are kind of punchy in the public eye, you know, because I mean, uh, doing ecological research or even in the biomedical fields, if you're looking at lower profile diseases or disorders, like, you know, ALS or psoriasis. COPS, psoriasis or something. Yeah, right. You know, that's, Teenage acne. Not a lot of money in that. Which is too bad because, I mean, can you imagine how much more kids would benefit and be able to really achieve their dreams if they didn't spend about five years of their lives just wanting to hide their faces uh, in their locker the whole time? Uh, but no, my, mm -hmm. my, my point is that it's it's a pragmatic thing, but it's also a press thing. It's a publicity thing that you go for mm -hmm. the ones that already have that cachet of being, you know, these are the big enemies. Particularly ecological research, you know, which is my which is close to my heart, kind of fall by the wayside because running a ten year study on the recovering ecology of a stream in Montana after a dam comes out, that's not really sexy. But it's the cumulative effects of all of these different pieces of research that can guide better practices for installing dams for clean energy. I think that one of the things that can 
really help is just getting more science education out there in the public so that when they do hear about things like, oh, we want to fund a study to do guppy sex, they don't immediately say like, well, that's outrageous. The government shouldn't be wasting money, you know, on that nonsense. If Those they guppies should be married first. <laughs> right. <laughs> they need to, if they have a better baseline knowledge of, you know, what basic scientific research, you know, is for and why it's still done. One of the things that I often hear about in the scientific community is that it's easier to get money to fund a new study rather than to get money to fund a replication study. <laughs> and so you see this shortage of people doing replication studies to, to test because they're not big and splashy. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully <laughs> at some point in the future, probably not under the current or the, the upcoming administration, but hopefully at some point in the future, we get a president again who is committed to funding science, you know, and funding research and education. And a Congress that wants to do that as well. Someday. Yeah, and one of the things you do see coming out of Congress from time to time is bills to limit spending on science to only things that will save human lives, only things that have tangible benefits. As if you could know what those are right. in advance. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that has to be part, I think that's something that keeps on getting introduced to the applications for National Science Foundation grants, that there can be a line inserted in there, um, how will this benefit humankind? And that that then becomes part of the way of judging that research, which is you know, fine if you're working on clean energy or biomedical research, but what if you're a paleontologist trying to dig up a dinosaur somewhere? How do you fill in that line and make yourself competitive? And there's a number of uh, uh, Congress people who want to push that as a limit on funds. If we're going to use government funds for research, it's got to, it's taxpayer money. It's got to help the taxpayers, and that would be unfortunate. And so it'd be nice to have a president who is a cheerleader for all aspects of science. But I think that's asking a lot. Hey, you know, there wouldn't be the millions and millions of dollars in Jurassic Park merchandise if they didn't fund that paleontology <laughs> science. So right. that basically pays for itself with the box Maybe office receipts. What we just need to do is make science fiction applicable to whatever area of science needs money and just make ah. it cool that way build the branding you know we, we really got to market this thing guppy so. sex the movie coming guppy to a theater sex. near you dude i'm picturing t-shirts oh you don't think that movie's been made <laughs> <laughs> well as many in the flannel nation know we like to end the episode on a high note it's been wonderful talking with you patrick and i think you've got a real prescient high note for us to end on related to obama here Sure. I think one of the uh, amazing things about Obama that, again, uh, highlights his role as nerd-in-chief is he's one of the only, uh, the first modern president to have published a scientific paper. Just last week, he published uh, an article, The Irreversible Momentum of Clean Energy in the Journal Science, which is the premier scientific journal in the United States. And I wow. think this highlights how important uh, science-based policymaking and data-driven decisions are for him. Uh, he also published a, a research paper in the New England Journal of Medicine defending the Affordable Care Act. And I think this is such a, a contrast to the anti-intellectualism of the Bush administration and, unfortunately, uh, what looms ahead for us. <laughs> right. Yeah, the dark clouds. Oh, wait, that was supposed to be a positive note. Well, you, I, you started out well there, Patrick. <laughs> yeah, I think 
Trump scientific paper is going to be pretty amazing to read. Although I get he did do the art of the deal. I mean, that's basically science right there. Trump scientific paper is going to look like your six year old's picture of it raining or something. <laughs> yeah, he's going to make a volcano out of baking soda or whatever. Oh, <laughs> or one of those two liter bottle cyclones or whatever. Yeah, those are pretty sweet. Put some glitter in there. Oh man, I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Well, that was a pretty high note. <laughs> Pat, um, we'd love to thank you again for being on the show. You know, do you have anything that you would like to shout out? Well, I guess so. Uh, if you uh, want to hear uh, more of my ramblings, come to the Winfield Public Library, where I'll be doing book discussions on science fiction over the next four uh, months. We've got a NASA exhibit coming into town. And uh, make sure you get your tickets early, because we got quite a big crowd at the Winfield Public <laughs> Library. Do you have any way for anyone to get in touch with you publicly, email, anything like that, if they got questions? You can reach me by email at patrick.ross at edu, and that address is short for Southwestern College, Kansas. Well, and you can also find me at Chuck Williams at Shaggy2Trope on Twitter. And I'm Brendan Williams. You can find me at Brendan Williams on Twitter with one L. And I'm Matthew Hodges. You can find me at Matt the Great with a W. And you can follow our show at liquid underscore flannel. Absolutely. Well, thank you for tuning in again to Liquid Flannel Podcast. Patrick, thank you very much for joining us. And everyone have a great week and tune in again. Bye.